Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 133 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Soviet Soyuz satellite episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that there was a Soviet Soyuz program test satellite launched from the Balkanur Cosmodrome aboard a Vostok rocket in 1966 called the Cosmos. 133. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, with that little bit of cosmos knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us from the loving arms of his new girlfriend, Soundtina, it is, of course... So, can the uh, Sonia Soremoyor satellite picture the Urethra asteroid from afar? Only after making a dissenting opinion at the Supreme Court level, yes. And this is Tim! Yes, this is <laughs> Tim. And Matt, I am now a brony scholar. You are a brony scholar. Uh, oh, are we revisiting this? We are, we oh, are, okay. because yeah. I'm a brony scholar, <laughs> and what makes you a brony scholar is that if you watch both brony documentaries that you can find on Netflix, you know everything there is to know about bronies. Wow. Well, I would like to hear more about your girlfriend, Soundtina. Oh, that happened again. So, yeah, Soundtina. Yes. yes. Boy, you're just trying to dodge all this Sony shit. I, will, I, I never know what you're going to say. You're supposed to be a proud employee. You're supposed to be proud. And here you are, dodging left and right. You know? <laughs> Especially when I think nobody I work with has ever heard of any of these products. Carry on. <laughs> Okay, so uh, the Soundtina is not actually a girlfriend. Nay, it is, um, it, it's, I don't even know what the fuck it is. It kind of looks like a lightsaber, seriously. Um, it, it is, the, the formal product name is Soundtina NSAPF1. It is described as a, quote, column of music, end quote. And it, ostensibly radiated audio in every direction. So I guess an omni-speaker? I don't know. But this thing really looks like a fucking lightsaber. Um, The PF-1, it was covered in leather and was available for just a mere $10,000. Perhaps, uh, you know, maybe this is the 50th shade of gray. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of it right now. This was a newer thing, right? Like, was this something more recent? Um, I don't actually have the information on how recent it is, um, but I do know that it is from, or, you know, I would I would have to say post 2000. But how post 2000, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Yeah, I think it's 2008 ish. It looks like. Though go. it does give me an idea for a rather saucy sex toy. <laughs> it's just, is this going to replace the Oral-B? Yeah, the Oral-B, yeah. <laughs> um, this is the other Sonicare product. Amazon will be so disappointed to have to get, take that back. Yeah, well, you, either, you can sit on this one for sure. <laughs> Slide it way up there 
And yeah. instead of like it rumbling, you know, kind of like how, okay, you know, have you ever experienced those dildos where it just kind of it vibrates so much, just kind of vibrates out of your hand? I know you know this problem because you first told me about this problem three years ago, Matthew. Well, with this one, it, there, it's just vibrating bass. It's, it's the bass that's coming out. So there's no real motion of the unit itself. So I, I think there's a market here. Just getting your anal cavity blasted by bass into orgasmic pleasure. Wow. I guess we're getting into the uh, hot kinky Joe level of orgasmic anal experiences then. I have been on Reddit way too long. I Kinky just, Joe? <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Um, as you know, I am a Redditor. And although for how much longer, I don't know, because people are really mad at Reddit right now. Uh, neither here nor there. Neither here. But they have different subreddits. And, of course, you post things there that fit the subreddit. And they, of course, have one subreddit that is called WTF, which, as we all know, is what the fuck. And... They frequently, one of the uh, all-time reposts is this chick by the name of Hot Kinky Joe, who is a specialist in the world of anal gapage, I guess would be the best way to put it. And the very first gif I was ever exposed to on Reddit is literally this girl who has her arm, arm, A-R-M, literally up this hot kinky joe's butt and you can see her moving her arm back and forth and the chick's fucking stomach is distending as she does it like a fucking alien trying to pop out of her stomach the the chick is up past her elbow dude past her elbow i'm like how can you how is that even remotely safe i mean as you're saying this, did you ever see the Mr. Bean movie, the first one, where he's basting the turkey and he loses his watch in the turkey, so he sticks his entire... <laughs> it eventually, his head gets in there and his head gets stuck. In the... I don't know. Maybe maybe the girl with her arm stuck all the was practicing to be a veterinarian. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. And so that's what this chick does. And then, of course, now, because people are literally scratching their heads going, what the fuck people then of course say oh well we must provide more gifts so now you you know you see gifts everyone it's been a while but you literally see one the last one that i saw was she the chick the same hot kinky joe chick or whatever laying on her stomach okay and then uh she appears to be sleeping peacefully all right And the camera begins to zoom in on her butt because, well, that's what this is for, I suppose. And out pops a basketball. Now, not a, not full, clearly not a regular, but you know, those little fun size. How big is this woman? Is she large? No, she's fucking skinny. Really? She's got to be like, she's got to be like a buck 20 soaking wet. I mean, so. She, she, so, so you see the little, and it's like one of those fun size one. It's like about the size of a, a like a smaller. I mean, you cannot use fun size okay. when it's, when it's in, it, but it's a basketball. You can't, it's obviously not NBA regulation. So, I mean, it's like one of those like kids, you know, don't, like, don't, 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 don't mention kids. Don't, don't say, don't say anything about <laughs> but children. Listen, I'm not done. Cause it gets even crazier. It gets even, so you see one pop out. Okay. Oh, and I'm like, and you're like, holy mother of God. And then six fucking more pop out. Six. She had seven of those fucking things up her asshole, dude. 
Did she get any range? Like, was she, like, blasting them out, or... No, no, they were just, you know, kind of like an egg sack, you know, just one after the other. Bop, 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 bop. But, yeah. So, if speaking Dutch is slang for vomiting, <laughs> what is slang for this situation? <laughs> the sound Tina. <laughs> That's what it is. Did she just sound Tina like six of those little basketballs? Yes. Yes, she did. Yes, that's exactly what she did. <sighs> wow. I'm glad yeah. nobody in my family is named Tina or... <sighs> <sighs> oh, man. So how was your week? Great now. So many ideas <laughs> have just popped in my head. <laughs> wow. Um, um, good? Yeah. How was your awesome. week? <laughs> Well, my week um, is pretty cool. Okay, so as you guys oh, wow. know, we mm. are our follow. Or we, we've uh, we kind of got into this little Twitter thing with a character by the name of Uncle Slavko from Love in the Time of Monsters, and that's how we ended up watching the movie that so we co- that we're going to be covering this week, right? Right. And were, were you waiting I, for me to say right? Yes, because I already yes, knew what was. you were going to say, so. Good, good. Well, I, I sure, but we're just playing along, you know. Anyway, so the character of Uncle Slavko is actually played by an actor uh, by the name of Mike McShane, who is truly like an improv comedy hero of mine. And I cannot believe my mind has been blown for like the last 25, 26 hours now that I have actually conversed with one of my improv comedy heroes um, and I just can't get over it, so I'm kind of still fangasming right now. Inadvertently, too. Yeah, it was great. I just yeah, I, I sat down to watch the movie last night, was doing just a touch of live tweeting while I was watching it, and then it just kind of dawned on me. I'm like, man, this guy looks familiar. I'm like, gosh, why do I know this guy? I know this guy. And so I had tweeted out to him uh, while I was watching it. And of course, uh, Mike McShane actually lives in the UK, so... You know, quite a few hours ahead and all that. Um, but then, yeah, he he tweeted back to me again. And I was just so excited that I, I realized I had been, you know, tweet. Even if it was in character, I'm still going to take it. it it's, it's, it's been fun, just to know. So now, so now I am officially following Mike McShane and uh, not just Uncle Slavko. So, woo! Well, guys, if you didn't think <laughs> news was getting weirder enough, I think it's time for... Uh, we need a like a little introduction. We really that. do. I was wondering, are you waiting for me to just jump in with a news of the weird? Wacky oh and crazy. God, that's weird. Wacky. Goofy. Sutina-y. Or is it Su- Sautina? Sutina. I'm getting... Sautina. I'm getting that... <laughs> oh my God, it's wacky. It's holy crap goofiness. It's Sautina-ness. Holy moly, it's weird. Look at that range. Yeah. Brought to you by DangerousMinds.com, or .net, uh, my go-to website for all things weird and soutine-y, or, or soutine What I, I can't, I'm thinking of poutine. <laughs> I'm thinking of poutine. <laughs> oh, see, now I just drifted back to that whole hot, kinky JoJo thing, because that's what I said we were going to call soutine and now you said poutine, and that's just not going to work for me. <laughs> Oh, man. German man 
follows divorce rules and gives his ex-wife <laughs> literally half of everything. This was posted on June the 19th at 10.9 at 9.45 a.m. Uh, it's a great little piece of news to wake up to. Quote, the car is quite well preserved for its age, but there are some signs of wear in particular. Half is missing, end quote. And that is below, that is the caption of a guy's truck that it looks like he cut in half. Quote, thank you for 12 beautiful years, Laura. You've really earned half. Greetings also to my successor, end quote, dear Julie. As we all know, divorce can get really, really nasty. Like, really nasty. Case in point, one man in Germany who goes by the name Der Julie online is giving his ex-wife Laura exactly half by lovingly sawing in half all of their joint assets. She gets her half and he gets his half. Makes perfect sense, right? Well, according to reports, there are hints that Laura was apparently unfaithful, and that's why Der Julie is so pissed off. Der Julie is currently selling his half on eBay, with each item having a write-up detailing its use. All I can say is, thank goodness they didn't have any children or pets. I'll just leave it at that. And you just scrolled down here, and Matt, what do you see in these pictures? What possibly could he have cut in half? My personal favorites are like the phone and the MacBook and stuff. I actually saw the eBay listing. I thought this was a joke. I saw it uh, either yesterday or the day before, and I thought it was literally a joke. Like somebody just photoshopped half their shit, like photoshopped half of their stuff out, and then were just selling it for fun. I can... Um, the chairs, but the bar chairs, it like literally looks like an art installation. I, it's, uh, and it even says it. Holy crap. The chairs are super as an art installation. <laughs> yeah, that's great. There's tons of fun stuff here. Couch in half, records in half, like an actual vinyl in half. Um, it's good stuff. So would you ever like going through a divorce? I mean, it, it won't happen again, but like... Could you ever see yourself being put into a position where you would go as far as to literally split everything in half with your ex-wife? See, I don't know. I, I, there's a, there's a scene. It's, I think it even is actually in the trailer of the movie, the war of the roses. And for me, it's all about nitpicking. It's about pushing the buttons. It's not about the technicality of things. And in one particular instance, uh, they're discussing in War of the Roses, Michael Douglas's character is going to Danny DeVito, who's their lawyer. And he he's like, all right, the judge says, you know, you have to divide the house up, you know, whatever, until you guys are separated. He's like, fine. So he actually divides the house up. And it's just this weird hodgepodge, but it's like half of the rooms of the house have been assigned to him and half have been assigned to her. And he's like, how the hell are you supposed to get anywhere? And he's like, well, you'll go this way and you go through this room to get to here and go through that and everything. And so Dan DeVito's like, but why don't you just split the house down the middle and just you stay in one half and she stays in the other? And Michael Douglas says, I get more square footage. You see? It's that. It's 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 the little things that that's the kind of shit I would do. I just can't see. I I can't see cutting my car in half. 
In all fairness, it is a pretty shitty looking car. Well, I mean, you know. maybe the back half was better. Than <laughs> 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 I don't. I don't know. Uh, that's yeah. That's great. So, should we get to the real news? Now? Yes, we must. All right, then. Here we go, folks. It is, of course, the news. <laughs> So, first up for me, because this is weird. Matt, it, it doesn't work when you're before. when you're laughing because people are going to be like, oh, he's just giggling at himself because he can announce the news all cutesy or it's whatever. It's weird. I've not, I've spent 133 episodes doing it this way, or 132, and now I'm trying to change it on the fly. It's just kind of funny sounding. For those of you out there who are ridiculously confused as to what is happening, we decided... I assumed you were going to edit it out. To, yeah, to... Oh, no, I'm not editing this out. <laughs> we decided to we get rid of the let's show... Let's take another three minutes to talk about it. That's we good. decided to get rid of the show openings. To, as you know. So Matt records it once, and I just drop them in with the music. So it's a little bit... It, it, it's like 30 seconds you know, of time saved. And so Matt is currently con- not necessarily confused, but he's a little bum-tickled by this. Are you bum-tickled, yes. Matt? You sound like you're bum-tickled. I think the very tip of the sound Tina is tickling <laughs> right now. So... I might I might be ready for some poutine. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, is that slang for anything? I wish I had my my oral B with I don't me. No, right but here. I don't think I'm ever going to ask somebody to go Dutch ever again because I just don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to risk it. I just you know. Gonna, all right, here we go. <clears throat> for real, here. You know, just no, we already did it. Now. We can just go into the news. <sighs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm. Well, you know. Okay, here we go. First up. From Sky105.com, by way of, doesn't seem to have anything, no, but there is no direct attribution here either, or attribution, whatever. Uh, Yes, it would cost $23.4 billion to build a real Jurassic Park and would require $11.9 billion in annual fees to maintain it. Ah, yes, how good is that, right? Uh, There is actually a video that you can watch. It is here at the website, but I believe it is also on YouTube if you'd like to check it out. Uh, One of the underlying motives in Jurassic World is the need to create a profitable dinosaur park. This is what pushes the creation of dangerous hybrid dinosaur Indominus Rex. Now, Now, it makes sense why money is always on Claire's mind. Operating a dinosaur park isn't cheap. According to an elaborately researched video, a recreation of of the Jurassic World theme park would boast a price tag of exactly $23,432,400,000 and would require a $11,907,000,000 $11,907,000,000 in annual fees to maintain. Um, and they do actually go into everything in terms of uh, mining the amber, uh, which has, been, has since been proven scientifically not viable, but still, uh, assuming that it still was, they go into mining the amber, actually getting the DNA, paying for a, a lab, um, that after you've built, you're now funding with the actual average salaries for these people. But apparently, 
the biggest thing is uh, about $10 billion of the initial investment uh, is the 66 square miles of land in Costa Rica that you have to buy. So they, they literally went to Costa Rica and inquired as to how much it would cost in U.S. dollars to buy 66 square miles of Costa Rica. And they said $10 billion. So it's stuff like that. And it really goes into everything, uh, spending $300,000 a year on a lawyer, $200,000 a year on a genetic scientist, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, those reoccurring costs. And then they actually went into the public documents that are like that Walt Disney gives and Six Flags gives and stuff like that about how much they spend in operational um, expenditures to keep the parks open. And so... Uh, for example, I want to say in the video it was somewhere in the neighborhood of like $6 billion or something like that for Disney to run all their parks around the globe. So you can see where all this stuff comes in. And then, of course, something that uh, both uh, Tim and I had alluded to in our Jurassic World reviews was the all the corporate branding and stuff. And when you have to make up $11 billion starts to make a lot more sense <laughs> love it or hate it starts to make a lot more sense so anyways um it's a really cool video i would suggest you check it out and it's also an interesting article but what do you think tim do you, do you think 11.9 billion dollars is a little steep to just to just for some dinosaurs chump change chump change. chump change it's worth it why is donald trump wasting his time pretending to run for president why doesn't he open up a, you know, like like his own theme park with dinosaurs with little really shitty toupees on top of their heads? I think that would be hilarious, cute, and rather adventurous. All right, what do you got, sir? All right, so I'm going to do a little one-two punch here uh, real quick. Ron Moody, born Ronald Moodnick, born January 8th, 1924, passed away June 11th of 2015. And to speed this up without my rumbling and rambling and yada yada yadas getting in the way i'm just going to read from this wikipedia article here and i did a little research and it is actually true uh it says here under the life and career section despite training to be an economist moody began appearing in theatrical shows and later decided to become a professional actor moody worked in a variety of genres but is perhaps best known for a starring role as fagin in lionel bart's stage and film musical oliver based on oliver twist by charles dickens he created the role in the original weston production in 1960 and reprised it in the 1984 broadway revival garnering a tony nomination for best actor in a musical for his performance in the 1968 film Oliver, he received the Golden Globe Award for Best Actor, the Best Actor Award for the 9th Moscow International Film Festival, and an Academy Award nomination in the same category. Reflecting on the role, Moody states, quote, Fate destined me to play Fagin. It was the part of a lifetime. That summer of 67 during filming was one of the happiest times of my life, end quote. He reprised his role as Fagin at the 1985 Royal Variety Performance in Theatre Royale, Drury Lane before Queen Elizabeth II and the Duke of Edinburgh. Quote, My proudest number was the number reviewing the situation. I suspect that because I gave my all to the role and because I was working with such a fine team of people, it inhibited my future career. I turned down quite a few offers afterwards because... I thought the people didn't come close to those I'd work with on Oliver, 
which in retrospect was a mistake, in quotes. And uh, that little quote was, uh, was, was Moody on his acclaimed role as Fagin in his career, because after he did Fagin, you know, like what he said, he turned down a lot of roles because he didn't think it really lived up to his experience on Oliver. Other than the artful Dodger and Bill Sykes, his performance as Fagin was absolutely enchanting and charming watching it as a kid. And in some way, I think that led to me kind of wanting to kind of pursue musicals more so. I mean, my grandfather did, obviously. His performance had an impression, left an impression on me as a young tyke. And second here, um, the last person you would ever expect to direct a biopic of Groucho Marx, and that is the Groucho Marx of the Marx Brothers, is Rob Zombie. That is right from Deadline.com. Rob Zombie to helm, Orn Moverman to script. Groucho Marx pick raised eyebrows my years inside Groucho's house. This is written by Mike Fleming Jr., and it says this exclusive rob zombie is ready to expand beyond the horror genre zombie and miranda bailey have acquired the rights to steve stolier's memoir raised eyebrows my years inside groucho's house love and mercy co-writer orin moverman will write the screenplay and zombie is attached to direct cold iron pictures miranda bailey and amanda marshall are producing alongside with zombie and andy gould the book tells the story, the bizarre story, of the last years in the life of Groucho Marx, told by a young Marx Brothers fan who spent those years as his personal secretary and archivist. In addition to getting to know his hero, the author found himself in the orbit of Groucho's brothers Zeppo and Gummo, Mae West, George Burns, Bob Hope, Jack Lemon, S.J. Perlman, Steve Allen, and scores of other luminaries of stage, screen, TV, and literature. The downside of his dream come true was getting close to his idol as the curtain was coming down in dealing with Aaron Fleming the mercurial woman in charge of Groucho's personal and professional life. Uh, and I'm going to skip down here to where it actually talks about Rob Zombie. Zombie, the multi-platinum recording artist turned film director, made his mark directing small-budget, profitable genre films like House of a Thousand Corpses, two Halloween films, Lords of Salem, and the currently shooting 31, about five people kidnapped on the eve of Halloween and placed in a lethal funhouse called Murder World. But I've seen how meticulous Zombie is in the preparation and design of these fright films, and he could well make the kind of transition that Saw Helmer James Wan and others have made from genre to more mainstream fare. He is separately writing to direct Broad Street Bullies, a film about the Philadelphia Flyers hockey teams that brought their way to prominence. So while he would not be the obvious choice to make a touching film about the last days of iconic Groucho Marx based on his resume, turns out Zombie is a huge fan of the comic and is steeped in Marx Brothers lore. Quote, I've been a huge Groucho Marx fan ever since I was a child and have read countless books on the comic legend. But after reading the book Raised Eyebrows, a totally new perspective on Groucho's life emerged. I immediately saw this project as Groucho's Sunset Boulevard, and I knew I had to bring it to the big screen. It is a sad, funny, and a very dark tell of one of Hollywood's greatest stars' final years. End all quotes. 
I think that's pretty interesting. I mean, it's always nice to hear somebody working on a movie that they're genuinely passionate about. Matt, any comments, concerns, questions over Rob Zombie switching focus a little bit for his next film? I, I for one, am actually genuinely curious about it, but I, I don't think anybody is expecting anything serious from it. Um, and, and I think that that I think that's actually a good position for him to be in, given that he has been so involved in the horror scene for so many years that such a major gear switch like this um, might be seen as more of a stunt than anything else. But I think that because people aren't expecting anything, I think that's going to really give him the breathing room to potentially do a very good job. So while I am definitely curious to see how it turns out um i'm also rooting for him so hopefully it will it will be worth watching yeah and he seems like a genuine filmmaker also you know i don't like every single movie he's made but there are a couple that i was pleasantly surprised by and did enjoy so right on cool all right well given our propensity for talking about things we really shouldn't i'm gonna go ahead and close out my news here uh from the hollywoodreporter.com uh by way of scott roxborough and Rhonda richford fifa movie director breaks silence on bomb quote it's a disaster my name is all over this mess end quote yes in the continuing saga of the fifa movie <laughs> Um. Oh, good. good uh, what is it? United Passions. Yes. <clears throat> Frederick Aubertine opens up about the $30 million pro FIFA film that grossed only $918 in the U.S. <laughs> Quote, now I'm seen as the bad guy who brought AIDS to Africa or the guy who caused the financial crisis. End quote. Uh, let's see here. Opening in the wake of the arrest of 10 FIFA officials under investigation by the FBI for corruption, bribery, and money laundering, United Passions, the propaganda-filled film about world soccer body FIFA, was an instant and epic flop. But even before the scandal broke, the $30 million movie was plagued by a battle between FIFA, which put up 80% of the budget, and the film's director and stars, including Tim Roth, who plays Sepp Blatner, the longtime FIFA president who announced June 2nd, that he will resign. In his first interview since the disastrous U.S. opening, French director Frédéric Aubertine tells The Hollywood Reporter he tried to strike a balance between a, quote, Disney propaganda film and a Costa Gravas Michael Moore movie, end quote, but the project ultimately tipped in FIBA's favor. Quote, now I'm seen as the bad guy who brought AIDS to Africa or the guy who caused the financial crisis. My name is all over this mess and I am apparent and apparently I am a propaganda guy making films for corrupt people. End quotes there. Roth declined repeated requests to speak about United Passions, but in a stunning confession in May before the scandal broke to German newspaper Die Welt, the actor lamented playing Blatter. Quote, yeah, I apologize. I didn't question the director. I didn't question the script. This is a role that will have my father turning in his grave, end quotes there. Uh, Roth admitted he took the job for the money, saying it helped him out of a, quote, financial hole, end quote, adding, quote, but you know what? 
The hole FIFA has dug for itself is so deep, they'll never get out of it. End all quotes there. Um, Finally, Roth wasn't the only actor involved with United Passions to shun the film. He apparently hasn't even seen it and refused to do any publicity. Only Gerard Depardieu bothered to show up at the 2014 Cannes Film Festival where United Passions had its world premiere on a huge outdoor screen in the Cinema de la Plage program. Sam Neill likewise skirted promotional duties for the movie, which purports to tell of the heroic efforts of FIFA presidents, including founder Jules Ramey, played by Depardieu, uh, Zhao Havalange, uh, played by Neil and Blatter, to turn soccer into a global sport beloved by billions and worth just as much to FIFA and its sponsors. Uh, the article goes on to talk about all sorts of issues from creative control, um, script rights, even the name of the movie, um, which is uh, the, the original name that FIFA wanted to call it was Men of Legend. And before finally getting to United Passions. So, one sounds like a gay porno, the other one sounds like a softcore porno. <laughs> Either way, I, I mean, yeah. One yeah. just questions so, the masculinity. Uh, I highly, yeah, but I do, I highly, if you're at all interested in what's been happening with people, or just the continuing saga of this terrible, terrible movie, um, please check this out. Again, it's HollywoodReporter.com. The article, FIFA Movie Director Breaks Silence on Bomb. All right, I'm going to end with a little fluff piece here. Via cinemablend.com, Pizza Hut just took dinner and a movie to a whole new level. This is written by Nick Romano. Uh, and this was posted 22, June 16th. And it says this. Pizza Hut is getting into the movie delivery business. It already has the pizza part down, pat. But now it wants to give customers something extra special in the form of a pizza box that doubles as a movie projector. (laughs) It's the ultimate combination of dinner and a movie you didn't know you wanted. According to The Verge, Pizza Hut enlisted the, the design aesthetic from Ogilvy Hong Kong, which bills itself as, quote, one of the largest marketing and communication companies in the world, end quote, to create this revolutionary pizza box. How it works is pretty simple. Uh, Now, I will say, before we continue, this is only available in China. It has not yet touched down in the States. Customers order one or four distinct pizza boxes, each offering a different movie download through a scannable QR code. Horror fans will want to go for Slice Night. Sci-fi buffs will gravitate towards Anchovy Armageddon. Hot and Ready is for the Romantics, and Fully Loaded will tickle the fancy of action movie aficionados. Though, you can probably use your Netflix or HBO Now app on your phone to stream other content. Once the box is delivered, you take out the lens that's embedded in the pizza table. That's right, embedded in the pizza table, You take out the circular cutout on the front of the box and place the lens in the opening. Use your smartphone to scan the code and download the movie, and then use the pizza table to prop up the phone inside the box. Its screen will then be projected onto a nearby wall for your screening pleasure, and the whole thing is called Blockbuster Box, which seems like an ode to the once great movie rental service that only recently closed all of its doors for good. What do you think? Is this something that will 
work in the U.S. because I sure don't. In fact, I do think this is just a marketing ploy for China since China is now a big hot commodity in the home entertainment realm of the film industry. And I think I really don't know much too much more about this other than this article, but I'm sure if you look into this product, you can see if there are any particular studios that are attached to this product. Maybe they're showing their own movies or movies that they are associated with, for example, trying to get their movie out there and trying to get more people to do it. Because in China, people are more uh, susceptible to things like this, you know, because it's cool, it's something different, it's something neat, nobody else is doing it, it's the next cool, hot thing, and I just don't think this will fly here in the U.S. because everybody has, you know, their smartphones, their TVs, their iPads, we can already watch a movie on our TV, what's the point of watching this if you're if you're you know camping when you're when you're outside eating a pizza and you decide to watch a movie while you're on the street or I don't know Matt Chinese media uh, consumption and distribution is just so entirely different over there that perhaps this is some kind of a viable alternative depending on the programming itself um, I would assume that these are probably going to be movies that you more than likely can't get through other means reliably. Um, and I think that that's why it works, um, because they always do want, you know, novelty. They're always searching for the next neat thing. Um, yeah, and you're right here, of course, why would anybody want to do that? There's, you know, virtually no reason to do that here, but we're also a culture that played pog. So, Hey, don't knock you never know what kind of fad we're going (laughs) to just say, you never know. You never know. So. Anyway, so I guess that is going to lock up the news there for us and bring us to... Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim... Matt and Tim will be discussing the 1980 short film Black Angel and its subsequent loss, impact, and potential feature film adaptation. And now, Discussions with Matt and Tim. That that was live, folks. That was live. That was him actually doing it in the moment because there's no way we can pre-record that and use say, that no, no, every no. time. Aside, yeah, aside from discussions with Matt and Tim, I don't see how we can ever not do that live. But then again, Matt, you don't, I mean, you don't actually record it, so. Well, no, we have to, We. I mean, we literally, that's where all of our production budget goes, is paying weird announcer guy to come out and say discussions with Matt and Tim. I know. Even with, I mean, there there is no technology on audacity that can replicate that I, I tone honestly think we just need to go pitch. ahead and resurrect George Plimpton and have him redo his masterpiece discussion or his masterpiece theater introduction and just revamp it for our show that would probably be cheaper than yeah pay, probably than, than paying that guy you know so anyhow so black angel this is, of course, the 1980 short film. It was uh, shown as the double feature, or featurette, depending on how you want to look at, uh, prior to the theatrical release of Empire Strikes Back um, in the UK. 
And it was the directorial debut of Star Wars art director Roger Christian, who was, who is literally phenomenal at doing wonderful things in terms of art, set decorations, and prop mastery and stuff like that. It's, he's, he's definitely knows his stuff. He's an Academy Award winner in that regard. So you, you don't want to say that um, he has no experience. Um, and this is a film that was enjoyed um, during its day, but due to the loss of the master... Um, was presumed gone forever. And it somehow, if I remember correctly, ended up in Universal. But it's now been rediscovered and returned and is now available on YouTube uh, where you can watch it for free. And it is the story of Sir Maddox, a medieval knight who has returned from the Crusades only to find that his home is basically... Everything he knows and loves is gone. Uh, sickness has ravaged the land and stay away from the children, you know, whatever. Um, he then comes across a woman who he who saves him from drowning. And he then feels compelled to rescue her, despite her protests to the contrary. And... Thus, the adventure carries through this wonderful thing. Now, this was um, one of the first times, this is actually the first time that a, the particular shot sequence is done. Now, if you remember in Empire Strikes Back, when Luke goes into the swamp on his own and he has to face down Vader, and there's that really funky shot sequence where he ends up chopping, you know, decapitating Vader, but of course the Vader mass explodes and then, he's, you know, he's killing himself. George Lucas loved that and actually got that idea from watching Black Angel during the production setup and everything, and this was the style that it was going to happen. Um, so you will get to see extended sequences of this in the film. And it's very interesting, but you can also see why this was done in its brevity in Empire Strikes Back, because... I feel that, personally, it is vastly overused in Black Angel. Um, I think that the score is is something that is also really, really good in, in establishing mood and tone. But I think that in terms of narrative pacing, because there's really not a lot going on, it's trying to use ambiance, it's trying to use the music, which is good, um, to work with the cinematography and try to tell the story they're trying to tell. Um, and it comes off as really just being a little too slow. It's, um, and, and then you're left with, uh, oh my goodness, what, what is it? The, the, the tale of Lord Farquharson, right? Is that the name of the poem? Ah, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. That is what it's called. Um, and it is... Uh, it's a short story by American author Ambrose Bierce. But, man, this thing is just absolute... It is... It is the movie, or the short film, whatever, Black Angel, really draws a lot of parallels to 
an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which features the uh, story of Peyton Farquhar, is his name. And yeah, there's a lot of parallels there. Really, really fascinating stuff. But as interesting as the story is, I think that is. I think it. I think it's more interesting that it's getting made into a feature-length film, or they're attempting. They're now working on it. There's. I know there's an Indiegogo. Uh, campaign that happened. Uh, it's still going on, and I okay. gotta say this real quick: for a hundred dollars, you can have John Reese Davis send you a personalized voice message, and he very well could be the voice of the SLS cast. <laughs> there you go, hundred bucks. <laughs> we could have him start. We could just have him say discussions with Matt and Tim. um at any rate though yeah i mean so i think that the movie itself has has certain merits to it and i can certainly see how uh it may have been enjoyed when it when it was initially released 30 years ago however it has not really aged particularly well it's definitely not bad but i would definitely say that it is um it's indicative of early work, and while it is interesting thematically, doesn't necessarily mean that it's all that great. And I personally don't see how trying to make it into a feature-length film will improve that. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Tim? I, I'm yeah, I'm trying to be fair. I really didn't know how how I actually felt about it. Until I was doing some more research into it, a few I guess it was a week or actually a couple weeks ago when uh, we were initially wanting to discuss this. And so when I came across the Indiegogo page and a couple other websites, they had some artwork for it. And holy crap, the artwork is really cool. And I'm talking about like it's it's kind of reminiscent in a way of the best parts of like Lord of the Rings, you know, it's more of like, like more of like a dark and brooding fantasy, but a fun fantasy, you know, it can be. And also that the, uh, the director, uh, Roger Christian, I think he, he has a better understanding, you know, in, in, in like, like what direction he wants to take the film. He understands that he made this movie 30, you know, some odd years ago and that it has to be updated and I think he's had a lot of time to sit on this movie over the years, that he's had a lot of time to really think about it. And in some way, I kind of came to the conclusion that he's he can be kind of compared to uh, George Miller in a way. You know, it's a very visual, uh, visually minded, you know, very artistic minded. And when he has the time, when they have the time and the money to work on something, they can turn out a great product. And I have a feeling this is definitely going to be the case with this film. I mean, you have beautiful artwork, you know, that I that I've been looking at. I mean, again, I, you don't know how it's going to, tr- you know, transfer to a movie, especially with a one hundred thousand dollar budget. That's actually what he's asking for uh, on Indiegogo. On Indiegogo, there's twenty five days left, and it's already raised one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. And I was reading an interview whenever this stuff first broke out, and I meant to, tr- I've been trying to find the article, 
and I can't find it for some reason. But he said that he is amazed by... I'm using Lord of the Rings, for example. Peter Jackson was given all this money to make Lord of the Rings. Or, excuse me, not Lord of the Rings, but The Hobbit. He had all this money, all this technology at his fingertips to make The Hobbit. And look at the end result. One of the movies was good. It wasn't great. None of the movies were great. Nothing was fantastic about it. The special effects was all muddled and everything just kind of fades into each other. You know, everything just blends together. Nothing really stands out about any of the movies other than maybe some of the performances themselves, which is not how the movie was supposed to be or not how the movie should have been, especially following Lord of the Rings, where all three of the Lord of the Rings movies are spectacular and they only got better as the trilogy went on. And with Black Angel, Christian said that with, you know, you give me a $100,000 budget and I will give you a movie that will rival, you know, Lord of the Rings in storytelling, for example. And I think with a movie, especially with something like a fantasy, storytelling is important. And what's funny is that I was thinking about this uh, earlier with with the short film, but with the feature length, he was comparing it to like, a, like Game of Thrones meets Valhalla Rising or Excalibur meets Lord of the Rings. And what's funny about him mentioning Excalibur and Valhalla Rising is that both of those movies, especially Valhalla Rising, which we reviewed a, a year and a half ago or so, it's a very dark and brooding film. Well, after Christian made the short film uh, Black Angel in 81, he showed it off to John Borman before he went to went, went off to do the movie Excalibur. And while John Borman showed the cast and crew Black Angel, saying that he wanted to kind of, not necessarily replicate the tone, but he wanted to have that kind of like brooding fantasy tone to it, you know, like kind of more slow pacing where it's definitely rich in story and rich in character. And that's kind of what you got. So if you've seen Excalibur and not Black Angel, you kind of get an idea of what what Matt is kind of talking about. Not a whole lot happens, but it relies heavily on visuals, pretty much visual storytelling. And you really kind of, in a way, get into the characters ahead. But in saying that, the short film is also dated in, in very obvious ways. Is it still a feat? You know, as in, is it still good? Is it still entertaining to watch? Sure, yeah, I thought so. And I honestly wasn't sure how it would, how how I would react to it being a full-fledged movie without really knowing too much about it. But then after going back and looking more into it, reading about it, looking at these pictures and stuff, I think he might have something... You know, might have something pretty fun at the on the on the you know in his hands. You know that we can all look forward to. But yeah, I mean, like Valhalla Rising, like Excalibur, it's dark, it's mystic, it's brooding, and that's kind of what I'm looking forward to. Something that's different in tone, different in pacing to a lot of the fantasy movies that you see now. More scaled back, more focusing on the characters, and especially more focusing or focusing more on the storytelling, which I think is the most important thing. And I feel that really out of, I I mean, I honestly think that he can do it. He is kind of reassuring me that, you know, that he is setting out to make a really good movie, a a passionate movie, you know, because this is like his passionate project. And he's putting a lot of passion and compassion into it. I'm personally looking forward to it. And I, I think it's in good hands. 
let's see here. I'm doing. I'm trying to do a little bit of math here. Um, I've, and, and so I've been looking some stuff up. So apparently in 1979, this 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 had a budget of 25,000 pounds in 1979, and in 1979 the British pound sterling was rough was worth roughly three dollars and twelve cents. So we'll just round down and say three three dollars US. And so that would be $75,000 there, right? So inflation calculator. Um, so, seven, ooh, apparently I've got somebody talking to me with my ducktails in the background. Uh, so 75000 there in 1979 um, is roughly $272,000 today. $272,319 and two pennies. So he's trying to do more with less, more now with less than he had for a 25-minute short film. Now, this guy has also done worked miracles because he, was, he got the Oscar for Star Wars for art direction with no money. They literally had no money. They, the set dressings are it's hilarious um, and, and amazing to look back on his career and see what he did. He actually did an AMA on Reddit um, a couple months ago and or actually maybe about a month ago even. And um, what was like discussing how they had to do stuff with no money. And so I believe he's resourceful. And then he got the Academy Award for that. In 1979, he was nominated for another Academy Award in art direction for Alien. So the guy clearly knows how to do to to create the visuals or give you the idea and create that mood. The problem is we're also dealing with the guy who um, directed Battlefield Earth. So I want to believe in him, but I am not convinced. <laughs> so I guess we'll just wait and see. I mean... He's asking for a hundred thousand dollars. He's gotten one hundred and twenty. He's got a stretch goal currently of one hundred and fifty, but he's going to need, you know, um, he's going to need over two hundred thousand just to just to have the equivalent budget that he had in nineteen seventy nine. But at any rate, I guess we'll find out because it looks like at this point something's going to happen. <laughs> I guess are, are are we are is that it? Do we need to bring an announcer guy back? Yes, I think so. I mean, he's getting paid 25,000 pounds. So. <laughs> okay. Then... Thus concludes Discussions with Matt and Tim. Next week... Instead of discussions with Matt and Tim, Matt and Tim will have a three-squared segment discussing actors or actresses they believe are trapped in a role forever, but not to be confused with typecasting. Thank you again for listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim. Yeah, thank you, weird announcer guy. Now, so what weird announcer guy is saying is basically like this: this is an actor or an actress that no matter what role you will ever see them in. It's not that they're typecast; it's not that they're necessarily a character actor. Um, but for example, maybe 
you can only ever see um, Harrison Ford as Han Solo. No matter what he's ever done, anytime you look at Harrison Ford, you always only think of Han Solo. It's that kind of thing. An actor or an actress who no matter what role they play, you always think of them as a, as a particular character or a role. And that's what we're going to be bringing to you next week. And so, I believe with nothing else left to do, we should just go to the movies, should we not? Yes, we must. <laughs> then let's do it, folks. The movies! <laughs> So, the movies this week, we've got Inside Out, the 2015 film, of course, uh, from Pixar and Disney. Then we have, of course, Hits and Love in the Time of Monsters. Where do you want to start, sir? How about Hits? Hits. Okay, so Hits is a 2014 American dramedy, and it focuses on... um, a very well, uh, uh, well-meaning. I don't want to say lovable loser, but he's definitely a well-meaning um, fringe idiot. I think would be the way to put it. Uh, who's a municipal worker in a small town, and he co- constantly goes off on tangents and tears because of small things in his. Um, in his town that bother him, for example, in the, very early in the film, he's going off about potholes and whatnot. And so he literally, he takes the, the paper and puts it into the pothole and takes a picture of the pothole with the paper every day. And he's commenting, I want to say, it's, you know, like 103 days or something is where he's at when he's, you know, when you first catch him taking the picture. Um, so he is definitely going about his day. He goes to the city council meetings. He constantly calls his, uh, his city council and leaves messages all the time. He shows up at the meeting, goes on all these rants. And of course, because they are videoed for prosperity or whatever, they're also subsequently uploaded on YouTube because of course it's taking place now. And it's not just the city council that records them, but people in the audience, whatever. Um, he's got a daughter who, takes him for granted to a certain extent, much like a your normal uh, 20-something, early 20-something kid might, who has a desire for fame. Um, and this movie ends up taking off when his videos go viral and how the town reacts, how his daughter reacts, how basically all of the things that go hand-in-hand with the internet sensation. I've got to say, though, that while I think David Cross is an excellent comedian and he is clearly an intelligent person and a wonderful, and I think a great actor, I just, I don't, I, I don't like his directorial style and I don't like the way he chooses to tell a lot of the stories that he chooses to tell. And I believe that hits is a sincere case in point to that end. 
I kind of like in hits. Hits, let's see here. I'm pulling it up here according to the Wikipedia. We've got a 100-minute running time. And it's... If you think about uh, Louis C.K., right? He's got a show. It's called Louis. Now, I want you to take the least funny episode of Louis. And this movie is not quite as good as that, but very close to the least funny episode of Louis. And then instead of making it a regular show, it's now 100 minutes long. And that's kind of what I feel hits is like. Um, I just, I, I didn't find it funny. I found it hard to take seriously when it was trying to be serious. Although I respect what was trying to be accomplished. It it is a look at small town life and it is a look at what makes those weird, those people who you think have nothing better to dear God, don't you have anything better to do than bitch about a pothole? Um, it kind of goes to show what makes these people tick and how, yeah, they might be weird. They might be out there that there's still value to that. And while I, and again, I respect that. I understand it, but I just don't like, uh, I don't like the execution of it. It just did not come together in any kind of cohesive way. And it just felt, um, it, it felt like an unfunny effort at a, at a hip comedy attempt, I guess. So, uh, at the end of the day, I got to give this one 2.25. I, I don't quite not like it, but it's not really okay either. Um, and it leans more towards the not like it for me. So that's what I got, sir. What do you got? Yeah, yeah this is an ensemble movie that just doesn't work. I mean, there really isn't any chemistry or, or, or groove that can really be found I like where the movie was going, you know, like like what he was trying to convey through the movie. But it just didn't work. The jokes were flat, jokes were bland, and a lot of them just missed. And it also seemed like nobody was really comfortable in their roles to where the jokes were just way too obvious. And I, I mean, I did chuckle a few times, but it was too far in between. I mean, I don't think it was even a few times. I think I can remember twice that I chuckled. But then, then again, there were multiple times where I thought that it was just interesting to watch when I was actually watching it because I kind of got a little bored with it that I just started thinking about other stuff and wasn't really, you know, it didn't have my undivided attention. I was still listening to it. I just didn't dig it. So I give this one 1.75 out of 5. It kind of felt in a way... Like, it was trying to be like the movie American Dreams, Z with the Z, that was Dream with the Z, where it was like the, you know, it was taking hits, it was a political satire, but it was also a pop culture media satire on uh, American Idol. And though it's not a great movie, the jokes and the satire worked for that film, and it hit all the right buttons. This one, not so much, and I think it was just lacking good jokes. It has the story, it has the idea, and it has it has the characters. It just didn't have I don't know, maybe the right people to play the characters, like the dad. That to me it seems like a great role for Louis CK. Everybody else was just too 
I'm going to play this character like this. I'm going to act this character. And I'm, I mean, obviously some of the dialogue was made up on the spot. But it just wasn't done right. Maybe at the moment when they were making it, it was funny as shit. Or it was so mundane as shit that it worked. But when you put it all together, it was just one misfire after another. So unfortunately, I love David Cross. I, I enjoy his comedy. I enjoy his acting. I enjoy his sketch comedy. But unfortunately, again, 1.75 out of 5 for me. Right on. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, all right. So where do you want to go from here, sir? How about Love in the Time of Monsters? Okay, Love in the Time of Monsters. 2014 comedy horror films directed by Matt Jackson. Written by Michael Scavar... I'm sorry. Scavarla. And stars Doug Jones, Kane Hoder, Mike McShane, Sean Wesley, and Heather Ray Young. Actually, it stars a lot more than that. Um... We've also got uh, Sean Weatherly, Gina Shaw, and Marissa Skell are the primary uh, characters here. And Danny Vasquez is also pretty clear and pretty big in this film uh, as well. Um, Okay, so we've got Carla and Marla, who are sisters that lose their dad in a tragic accident. Uh, when they are young and have pretty much relied on each other and their mom ever since that accident. Um, Carla and Marla are taking a trip up to Uncle Slavko's uh, All-American Family Lodge and because Carla's boyfriend has, uh, or fiancé, I guess, has taken a job there to make some extra money. Now, it's initially thought that he was hiding this information because he's ashamed of what he was doing. Because this fun-time family lodge that Uncle Slavko runs, he uses it as more of a tourist trap to have people come out and spot Bigfoot. And that's what the boyfriend is doing. He's playing one of the many Bigfoots that people are supposed to encounter while they're there. Um, And so, thus, of course, upon arrival, though, we have yet again a pond filled with (laughs) toxic waste um, that causes, uh, through, through, through the smoking of pot, see, this is why pot is evil, and smoking, and smoking is bad, because it will turn you into mindless zombies. Uh, but yeah, so we have a kid. One of the other Bigfoots is smoking a J out by the pond. Um, the the J falls into the pond. He goes in after it, falls in. Of course, there's toxic waste in there. And he now comes up as a, I guess, a zombie or whatever. Anyway, so from there, now it's a, Battle for survival. Who will make it? Why are these people acting this way? How did this happen? Who's responsible? And all of these other wonderful questions. Now, there, the interesting thing is, is that there are the names. Doug Jones, who played Abe Sapien in Hellboy 1 and 2, is in it. Kane Hoder, uh, or Hodder. Um, he was um, 
Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th. You've also got, like I said, Michael McShane plays Slavko, who is the immigrant turned um, owner of the, you know, family fun time lodge, whatever. And you've got really decent, really good character actors playing the upper echelon older uh, adults. And you've got, for the most part, some really decent actors and actresses playing the kids. Now, that's not to say that everybody is good. There are some really terrible the characters in there. And the interesting thing is, is that you can tell the strength of the actors because the writing is just really, really wonky. There's some places where the writing is actually halfway decent, and then sometimes where the writing literally goes off the rails. Um, and and I want to specify that I really feel it's the writing here. Uh, Mike uh, Skvarla, I think he's got interesting... I think he has a really interesting idea for the for the horror story he's trying to tell. And I think that, especially combined with Matt Jackson as the director, when they are on, which happens a few times throughout the movie, they really are on. Uh, especially at the finale, which is completely over the top. And what I truly believe Zombievers could have been. Unfortunately, though... It's really weighed down because a lot of times when it's off, it's really, really off. And you are combined with bad characters. They, they, I, was really, I was really impressed. There is a young lady, Heather Ray Young. She was a Playboy Playmate back in uh, 2010. Now, um, when she shows up in the movie, I'm thinking, oh man, they're just going to use her for, they're just going to use her for nudity. Right and and she's not a good character. Um, the acting is not strong. But I'm like throughout the whole movie, she's you know she's not taking her clothes off. She's not. I'm like okay, great, this is good. And then ah, they blew it. I was you know I was like cool, a horror movie where we're actually not going to have any nudity. Um, and then no, they blew it. So you so they do things like that. You also have things where. The zombies are attacking the humans. And instead of having it look believable, um, it just looks terrible. And it's not trope terrible. It's not, oh, look, we're making fun of it. Or, oh, look how, look at the satire we're making of it. No, no, no. It's just legitimately bad. Um, the, the, how often they're trying to wrestle one another and everything like that. So that's the thing is when it's off, it's really, really off. But when it's on, it's really on. And there were sometimes, several times, where I distinctly found myself legitimately laughing. Not because it was bad, but because the dialogue was funny or it played off well. Um, for example, there's one point where they're asking one of the guys um, to go out and help and just be helpful, you know, and, and go and try and see if they can get a sample of this water to, you know, swamp water or whatever to see what's going on. And he's like, well, why should I? And then they focus on Carla. And, you know, she's this cute blonde, right? Uh, and he just looks at her and the camera pans over to her. And then it pans right back. And he's like, you're not that good looking. And I was, just, I mean, literally. It's, so they've got good one-liners in there and stuff. Um, and <clears throat> there's good character acting as well. Um, but even the good character actors also falter a bit. There's some... Um, and and I don't think that it was 
the acting in that regard so much as, again, falling back to the writing, falling back to the direction. So there is, there are fun things to like about this movie. And there are legitimate things to enjoy as well. But they are somewhat far and few between. And I wanted to like this movie. And even though I legitimately laughed a few times, I can't quite hit the, I can't quite hit three. But I can say that it's better than okay. So 2.75 for me on this one. Yeah, I you know, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that was a very uh, fair review. Because one thing to, to point out, though, is that this movie is a low-budget movie. And some people will Indeed. look at... What's that? Yeah, and some people look at it and, and say, like, oh, look at it. It's it's Look how it's shot. I mean, the quality isn't that great. But I like movies like this because it has more freedom to do whatever they want without having to worry about a bigger budget or, you know, spending way too much time trying to set up a scene and get the lighting right and all that jazz, which I'm sure they've done. And it's obvious that they put a lot of hard work into it. So any negative stuff that Matt and I are talking about has nothing to do with the fact that it is a low-budget film. Because personally, I do enjoy low-budget movies. Because of all the reasons why, you know, because because of all the things that this movie did get right, like what Matt was saying. However, the movie does fall into cliché territory, even for a campy B-grade horror flick. You know, you have the slutty, desperate for sex woman that can pull smart wit of her ass when a scene calls for it. The brunette. I think she was she brunette or was she did she have black hair? I forget. I mean, yeah, she's a brunette. Her, she's, her, she's Marla. This was Marla of the Marla Carla sister. Yeah, character. yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. You know, she's the the promiscuous woman that is witty. Not that promiscuous women that can't be witty, but it just seems like it, same. It, it happened with uh, Zombievers. You know, there was that one woman that had that sass, and she was witty, and she can pull off all of these. You know, quote all this stuff, and she was just super, super smart. And it just over the years, or over the you know all, all these movies, all these B grade horror movies. And again, I'm not saying B grade as if it's a bad thing. Uh, there's just obviously distinction between a big budget movie and a low budget movie. Nothing wrong with that. But over the years with these movies, uh, I, I think a lot of the stuff has become way recycled. And that is without there being, uh, you know, enough originality put into it. And that I'll get to that in a minute. But you have this woman. She pulls this wit out of her ass when the scene calls for it. And the movie is too busy trying to play off the teen 80s horror movie stereotypes without anything, without adding anything new and original to it. Other than the basic story itself. Uh, when I originally saw the posters, I thought, oh... Interesting. They're going to be the monsters are the abominable, uh, not the abominable snow creature, uh, Bigfoot. It's going to be the Sasquatch. Well, no, these are people dressed up as Sasquatch, you know, at the tourists, you know, to scare the tourists or whatever. And those people inside the costumes turn into, you know, the monsters or the zombies or whatever. I thought that was cool. I thought that was original. I thought what got people to the family tours trap, you know, to the lodge made sense. And it, you know, it, it kind of, it was a nice, uh, nice foundation for a film like this, but everything else, almost everything else, the stereotypes, you know, it was just focusing too much on the eighties horror movie stereotypes with the, with the, the hot chicks, the overly hot chicks, 
uh, the dialogue, the raunchiness, the cursing. You know, I love raunchiness. I love cursing when it's done right. But not when it's purposely doing it to do it. If that's not its main goal and there's more originality put into it or if it's used in a way that works well with the story itself, then, you know, it's cool or whatever. Also, you have this over-the-top stereotypes, which really plays out in these kind of movies. Uh, with Zombievers, you have the the hick, who is over-the-top stereotype. You also have the, the jock guys, who were very jock-like and very assholey. You know, the slutty women, you have, you know, even in Wolf Cop, there are the stereotypes as well. And now we're here, where originally, like I said, normally it's, you know, it's dumb women and hicks that are being stereotyped. This time around, it's dumb women and Russians. And when the real drama kicks in, because kind of in a way like Cabin in the Woods, the movie does kind of take a, a make a little a little switch for a few moments. It gets a little bit dramatic. But when it happens, you can't really tell if it's real drama or if it's a part of the joke. And really, that makes things a little more awkward than anything else at first until you realize, oh, it is actually trying to be, uh, you know, try to be serious, you know, trying to add more depth to a couple of these characters. However, the seriousness clashes severely with the many random and overtly over-the-top, campy, low-budgetness, you know, uh, with the, like, with, with the characters, with the, just the filmmaking itself had a lot of really good ideas, but it just, it just gets a little too, you know, throwing, throwing, you know, paper up in the air and letting it fall wherever. And that's kind of the, you know, the feeling I got with this. And really the movie is split between really low-budget genre and something entertaining and thought out. And so I think I kind of stand by Matt with what he says, as hopefully you can tell with my my review. I enjoyed it, or I, I guess I should say I didn't like it, and I enjoyed it, but all to a point. Matt gave this one 2.75. I'm giving this one 2.75 as well. All right, 2.75 across the board on that one. Okay, which now leaves us with Inside Out. Disney Pixar's uh, fantasy comedy drama film. And this one, of course, stars Amy Poehler, Phyllis Smith, Bill Hader, Lewis Black, uh, along with, of course, Mindy Kaling, Diane Lane, and Kyle McLennan. Um, right? McLennan? Yeah, McLennan? I don't know, whatever. Um, I apologize for ruining your name there, Kyle. All right. So this follows Riley and her family, um, but primarily takes place inside the mind of a young girl named Riley, who, when she's born, her very first primary emotion, Joy, appears and then starts to guide her. Um, she's then joined by anger and uh, sadness, fear, disgust, and anger. And together they exist in headquarters which is of course the subconscious and every time that she has a meaningful event happen in her development it creates a core memory and that gives her core pieces of her personality that makes her Riley that the family knows and loves so she's got imagination land and uh, hockey land 
family land, honesty land, imag- whatever, imagination land, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, af- as uh, Riley is now 11, Joy is basically like the overriding, kind of like the manager. She's kind of like the leader of the emotions. And while they all definitely have their place, sadness seems to be pretty much left with nothing to do. Um, she's constantly at, you know, she's constantly feeling the need to touch memories and stuff because each memory is kind of like a marble that's color coded. And, um, according to each person, so like disgust is green, sadness is blue, joy is gold, so on and so forth. And when sadness touches a memory, it makes the memory sad and now, and joy can't fix it. So this ends up leading to a set of uh, experiences that causes a sad core memory, which Joy cannot abide. And basically, this causes a break, in quotes, inside uh, Riley's head as Sadness and Joy end up getting sucked out of headquarters and are now in long-term memory. And they have to work their way back to headquarters, leaving anger, uh, anger, fear, and disgust in charge. The movie really takes off from there, and it's basically a journey of uh, self-discovery, but not just for joy and for sadness, but for Riley as we find a transition as we find any transition in our lives. This movie for me, I am going to go out on a limb and I would like to apologize in advance if I am misunderstood in any way, because I, I'm not trying, I am not here to insult anybody's intelligence by any stretch of the imagination, but I fear that I may be misunderstood uh, and lumped in the category with the guy who says that uh, women cannot understand Goodfellas. And, and I'm really not trying to go there. But this is a movie that I think most anybody will objectively say is a good film. Uh, despite age, there's, of course, wonderful things in it for kids. Um, great things in it for, for teens and young adults and stuff like that. Um, and there, it's, it's a good movie that people will enjoy it. But I believe that until you hit a certain age in your life, um, and it's not a hard age. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, it's 25, it's 30, it's whatever. But I think it's, I think it's different for everybody. And I think in the, in the preponderance thereof, you will find that it will be older, the older you get. That it becomes a great deal easier to appreciate the themes of this film. I, I don't think that a younger person will truly be able to appreciate it as much as someone who has the ability to look back on their life and reflect objectively. I think further that without having children, there is still yet another barrier to being able to truly understand the 
the fullness that this film can provide. And I'm not here to say anything about whether or not people should have kids. That's, that's neither here nor there. But I think that it allows yet another deeper introspective reflection and also thematic inspection that isn't available when you have not had a kid or kids that you can, you know, that you can watch grow and change right in front of you. So I think, and I think that's a great thing really, because you are able to then go back and truly rediscover this film and find new things to enjoy and find new things to love and appreciate as you get older. Should you decide to have kids when, you know, or, you know, maybe you are an actual mentor and while they're not a physical kid, it's an adopted kid or someone that you basically all but have legally adopted. You know what I mean? Um, and you're going to find that this film will continue to speak to you. And I don't think you can ask anything more. So, um, before I get all emotional and, uh, blubbery again, too late. Yeah. Uh, bringing down the podcast. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'll shut up. I'm gonna, well, no, I need to stop. Cause I'm literally, I'm starting to get emotional here and that's no fun for anybody. Uh, don't, don't worry. I will, I will turn this sucker around. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm giving this one five stars. Oh, and, wow. That's good. Um, I, yeah. And, and for me, I, I know I had my first five star movie last week with love and mercy and I don't want to take anything away from that. But, uh, for me, inside out is definitely the best film I have seen hands down this year. So is so. this your favorite Disney Pixar movie? Um, it, I don't know. Finding Nemo and Toy Story 3 are probably, I don't know, I, 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 would have a hard time duking it out between these three films. Well, so a lot of people find this one to be the best, are saying that it's the best Disney Pixar movie, and and most critics are saying that this is, uh, Inside Out is a return to form. And I, I kind of question that, because is it better than Cars 2 and Monsters in University? In some ways, yes. I mean... I, Cars Two is is. Are you asking me, or are you just? Is this your review? Oh, this is my review. Oh, okay. My bad. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. I was about to answer you. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to step away now. Yeah, and 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 I think it all just comes down to the uh, entertainment factor. Um, was I entertained by Monsters University more than this movie? I was. Now. Did I get more out of this movie, like on an emotional level, on a thought-provoking level, than I did Monsters University? Of course I did. Now, it's kind of, but to me, it's kind of difficult to find 
that balance like what what are what is the movie goer looking for are they looking for entertainment something that'll just blow not necessarily blow your mind just something to go in and you thoroughly enjoyed it or do you want to be touched you know emotionally have something more thought provoking a good movie to compare uh, my thought my my idea of a perfect pixar movie would be like monsters uh, incorporated where you have a very entertaining story, but it has a nice emotional ending that made me cry, and it still makes me cry. And it's one of the sweetest endings to any movie ever made. With Toy Story 3, you had the return of the king of endings for a depressing family film, because the sadness just kind of kept on going until the movie finally ended. And it wasn't a, like a like a super overly depressing sadness, I guess. I mean, when the, you, of course, when the, the toys accepted death, that was devastating. And then the ending was more of a happy sad because, you know, you were going through, you know, you, you've been there since the beginning. At least I was there from the from the beginning. Matt was there from the very beginning. We, I grew up with Toy Story, so it's been a part of my childhood, and it was amazing and touching to watch it come to an end. Uh, well, apparently it's not coming to an end, but, you know, like for their story to move on and go away from Andy, I guess. Going back to Inside Out, is it better than Toy Story? Is it better than WALL-E? Is it better than The Incredibles? Is it even better than Monsters Incorporated? Or even Ratatouille? I don't think so. I think a lot of these movies are different, but personally, I'm looking for something that is more subtle. And unfortunately, I felt that the life lessons, you know, the core emotional heart of this story was going everywhere from beginning to end. And because of that, I felt like this movie really didn't take off for me. Matt, I can totally see why you love this movie. I have no issue with that. I can see why a lot of people love this movie. People can love whatever movie they want. And I can see why uh, this type of movie, or what this movie explores, can have an impact on a lot of people. I, I can understand that. But to me, it was just too blatant, too in your, in your, in your, in your face. And really, I like my depression and sadness more subtle. Now, this movie has a lot of good things about it. It has a good story. I thought the story itself was really interesting. And I also thought the voice work was very good. I thought this was Amy Poehler's uh, movie. Amy Poehler and Phyllis, I forget her last name, but she played Sadness. I thought she was excellent. I thought they both worked great. And the idea of those two kind of going on their misadventure... Uh, was a really good idea. But when they're just kind of meandering through halls of orbs, they could have done more with, like, the islands. The islands of... I forget, like, the islands of emotion. You know, there was the hockey island. There was the, you know, the family island, all that stuff, or family land. And more could have been done with that. Um, it, and, it, and it was very much like the movie Up, in a way. Uh, actually, there's a lot of comparisons to Up, because when I first saw Up, I criticized, I mean, I don't want to say I criticized it, because that's a good movie, but one thing that I had an issue with is that it felt like it was trying to be an adventure movie, but it's not an adventure movie. The movie is definitely more scaled back, and it was more about something more uh, more personal and more emotional than an, than an adventure film. It was about 
these two characters. It was about this old, angry old man becoming a a not-so-angry old man and opening up his heart, which has been torn out of him after his wife passed away. You know, opening his heart towards uh, this little boy that desperately needs that father figure. And of course that's sad, and of course that's depressing, and, and depending on how you look at it, because of of what the movie dabbles with. It happens mainly at the end, closer to the end of the movie, once the characters build up to a certain point. Once you realize the stake, the stakes of the character that, that they are put, being put in, and what they are fighting for. Inside Out, it starts off at the beginning of the movie, and it already starts up way, starts off way up here, and, you know, once you're all the way at the top, it's hard to really go any further than the top. That's the problem I had with this movie. Good story. Great uh, voice work. It wasn't particularly that funny. I, there were plenty of times I laughed. I thought uh, what they did with uh, the voices and the other character said, like in the parents' head, especially at the end of the movie where you get to see the voices in the cat's head, that's really the only time the whole movie you get that feeling of kind of like what I, what I like to call Toy Story humor, where it is a little bit more goofy and silly, definitely more so kid-friendly. And yeah, and that, that's what I like. That's what I wanted more of. I wanted more of that goofiness, that fun, that lightheartedness. I'll just end it there. I give it, I give it three. I liked it. But I, I did have a lot of issues with it. Okay, well, that will conclude the movies for this week. Next week's movies are going to be Dope and Ted 2, which, of course, in the theaters, and The Homesman, which will be on Netflix, a good Western. I haven't seen a good Western for a while, so I'm excited about that. Um, and I guess that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! Alright, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can find us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can of course follow me this is matt on twitter at nitwit12345 you can even climb aboard the information superhighway and track down tim on twitter if that is your heart's desire and of course you can always subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to amy poehler i get to say this i cannot stress enough that the answer to life's questions is often in people's faces Try putting your iPhones down once in a while and look in people's faces. People's faces will tell you amazing things, like if they are angry or nauseous or asleep. Take care, cinephiles, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. 
Thanks again for listening.